The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 66. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanrity. This week we are at Act 5, Scene 5, and back at Macbeth's side of the impending battlefield. Inside Dunsinane, there are fewer men than we saw at his side earlier in the play. Stage directions generally give us only Seaton and soldiers, although we get the drum and colours here too. Macbeth enters in quite a defiant mode, crying, Hang out our banners on the outward walls. The cry is still, they come. Our castle's strength will laugh a siege to scorn. Here let them lie, till famine and the ague eat them up. Were they not forced with those that should be ours, we might have met them dareful, beard to beard, and beat them backward home. Macbeth is happy at the strategic advantage he holds. He calls for his banners to be flown and displayed on the castle's outward walls. There's no waving of a white flag for him. Despite the huge oncoming army, the cry or news is that they're still coming. Macbeth believes that his castle is strong enough to withstand a siege. Malcolm's forces will probably set up camp all around the castle, but Macbeth isn't bothered. He says they can lie out there in wait until famine and the ague, or fever, eat them up. So they can starve or sicken in the fields before his castle, but he will not give in. He does acknowledge that if so many of his own forces hadn't joined Malcolm's side, then he might engage in hand-to-hand combat, beard-to-beard or face-to-face. Were they not forced with those that should be ours, we might have met them dareful, beard-to-beard, and beat them backward home. But, of course, he does know that he's outnumbered. Macbeth's speech is interrupted by a cry from off-stage, often described as a cry of women within. Understandably, Macbeth asks, What is that noise? Seaton answers, It is the cry of women, my good lord. Different editors argue over what happens here. Some suggest that Seaton exits to find out what's happened. Others like to have him stay on stage. Macbeth continues, describing how he hasn't felt fear for some time. I have almost forgot the taste of fears. The time has been my senses would have cooled to hear a night shriek, and my fell of hair would at a dismal treatise rouse and stir as life were in't. I have supped full with horrors. Direness, familiar to my slaughterous thoughts, cannot once start me. It's an interesting choice to have him describe fear as something you can taste. Macbeth has all but forgotten it. But he does tell us that in the past his blood ran cold, or his senses cooled, when he heard a shriek in the night. We know this well. After he killed Duncan, we saw him agitated by the cries and noises in the night across the castle, when owls and crickets were enough to set his teeth on edge. He also acknowledges that even a scary story, a dismal treatise, was enough to make his hair stand on end, as if it were alive with horror. But now, he says, he has supped full with horrors. 
He's had his fill of them, and is so full he's no longer afraid. His thoughts are so familiar with horror that nothing can really scare him. There's something interesting about the phrasing of his last line. It seems almost to echo Lady Macbeth earlier in the play. He's just said, supped full with horrors, direness. Reminds me of Lady M saying, top full of direst cruelty. It's a little vague, certainly, but I don't think it's accidental. Shakespeare wants her on our minds, because now Macbeth asks again, wherefore was that cry? If your edition had Seaton exit, he's just returned, since of course he has to answer this question, and he says, The Queen, my lord, is dead. We haven't seen Lady Macbeth for several scenes, but even so, this is a shock. Shakespeare doesn't give us any more detail here, but we'll get a callous bit of further information in a few episodes' time. For one of the most fascinating women in all of literature, it's a very quiet, lonely death. The Queen, my lord, is dead. Macbeth's response is extraordinary. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This gloomy, rueful mood, the nihilism of this speech, contrasts with the exuberance and sabre-rattling with which he began the scene. There's a tenderness to it also. Macbeth starts with, She should have died hereafter. Editions of the play might tell you that he means she would have died at some point in the future anyway or that she ought to have died after this particular moment of conflict, since then, as Macbeth says, there would have been a time for such a word. There might have been more time to deal with news like this. Either reading is valid, but both overlook the echoes inherent in the word hereafter. The third witch promised Macbeth that he'd be king hereafter, almost before he knew what was going on. And then the first full sentence that Lady Macbeth says to her returning husband is Great glams, worthy cordor, greater than both, by the all hail hereafter. Hereafter is full of potential, but it is also vague. It suggests, but it does not define a future time. In the scene where we see the rot set in between husband and wife, it is again a kind of hereafter. Macbeth says, be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck, till thou applauds the deed. He doesn't tell her when these things might happen, only that she'll be glad of them, hereafter. How ironic now that he's hearing she has died, and that hereafter there might have been a time for such a word. It's too late to tell her all the things he might have told her. 
she's gone. Such a word, hereafter. The speech that follows is all about words and time. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Every tomorrow creeps along in this same insignificant or petty pace from day to day. Shakespeare's playing around with the sound of tomorrow and now today. All the way to the last syllable, the smallest part of a word of recorded time. We're going from tiny portions of a word, from today through tomorrow, all the way until the end of time, like the line of Banquo's heirs stretching to the crack of doom. And every one of our yesterdays guided other fools on their path to dusty death. Every day leads to death, so Lady Macbeth, of course, would have died hereafter at some point. This segment also echoes much of the burial service in the common book of prayer, which includes lines like, Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live. He fleeth as it were a shadow. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Hence dusty death. And of course, man of woman born. Macbeth's references are understandably bleak. He continues, Out, out, brief candle. Our lives are as fragile and as beautiful as a single candle burning bright but brief. This line rather obviously echoes Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking when she was washing her hands and crying out, out, damned spot. None of these are accidental. Macbeth gets philosophical now with another echo of the burial service comparing life to a walking shadow and from the liturgical to the theatrical he moves on to one of the most famous lines in the play when he says that life is a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Like a bad actor who only gets a brief moment on stage to strut and fret and have a go before he's never heard again, life is our chance on earth. It is meaningless, a story told by a fool, all noise and rage, but little more. This is Macbeth and Shakespeare at his most powerfully glum. In many respects he's not wrong, but it takes a play like this to get us to a mood like that. It's beautifully phrased and so accurate that it's a line that most of us will remember. For all of everything else that's going on in this play, I think it's important not to overlook how special this relationship has been. A love like that shared by Macbeth and Lady Macbeth is very rare in these plays and in the world. They don't cheat, they don't separate, and while they are no saints, they are devoted to each other. Whatever about his feelings of autumn and rueful thoughts about his way of life falling into the seer, there's a change in Macbeth hereafter. He's lost his lady, and now life, as he puts it, is meaningless. It's a brutal place to stop, but stop we must to draw a line under Lady Macbeth's time in this play before another frazzled messenger arrives. We will end this scene in the next episode, showing just how much of a roller coaster Act 5 will be for an actor taking on this title role. 
I want to thank all of you who wrote in after the bonus episode on the folio. The winner of Emma Smith's book will be hearing from me during the week ahead. Thank you for your company, as always, and I'll speak to you next time.